Yes, my name's Rick. I work here at Agro... See, I had to check my notes for that. <laughs> Rick. Um, I work here at Grace Church. Um, if we've not met before, please do grab me after the meeting. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, as a church, we're spending the next six months uh, looking at the book of Exodus, um, which you'll find at the beginning of the Bible. It's the second book in the Bible. It's pretty old. Um, and it's in the bit of the, uh, the Bible that we call the Old Testament that was written uh, before Jesus was born. And we've called it, He Draws Us Out to Draw Us In. Because that's the message of Exodus again and again, and also the overarching message. And the message that we're going to hear today that he takes us out of something bad and brings us into something good. So if you have ever cried, God, get me out of this place. Get me out of this situation. Maybe that's you. Well, today, God is going to speak. I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 10 for now. Now, A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen in pitch, which is a bit like tar, made it seaworthy. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of the pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I... Go and call you a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I'll give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And if you've got a Bible like mine, you might have a little note that says at the bottom, Moses sounds like the Hebrew for draw out, which I think is so cool. Moses' very name means Exodus. You know, God definitely had a plan for this little boy. If you were here last week, um, you'd have heard JP give us some of the background uh, in Exodus 1 to what's going on here. Uh, The Hebrews, that's God's people, uh, sometimes called the Israelites, um, they are in Egypt. They left their own country because there was a famine, and they've lived in this other country, Egypt, which is just like Egypt today, um, for about 350 years. And it's gone badly recently. And when I say badly, I mean terribly. They've been put under slavery by the king to subdue them. And worst of all, in the last verse of chapter 1, Pharaoh has commanded all his people that every son born to the Hebrews should be thrown into the Nile, into the river that runs through Egypt. And he doesn't seem to mind about the girls which I find 
wonderfully ironic as it's women who seem to be his downfall in this story. <laughs> you know, they're the heroes. They're the ones that behave in the Christ-like way, reflecting God, prefiguring Jesus, squaring up to that devil-like Pharaoh. You never make Pharaoh's mistake and underestimate how much God loves to use the mistreated, the overlooked. Women, slaves, children, these are Jesus' co-laborers. But it's important to have this background in mind because, I don't know about you, maybe you've heard this story before, uh, you know, Sunday school, RS lessons, something like that. And if you, if you are like me, you'll probably have this image of, you know, a serene child in an open-top basket, a Moses basket, that's where we get the name, floating down the river, buffeted by the waves of the Nile, probably being rocked to sleep until he floats majestically into the arms of a lovely, saving princess. Except that the Nile is death. It represents death. That's where he's been commanded to be killed. And you sort of go, well, how did we get here? How do you put that together? If this was a film, you know, one of those where you can hear the, the baby's thoughts, you, you'd hear Moses go, um, Mum, you, know, um, you know how the Nile is death to me? Yeah? Okay, here's my one rule. Don't take me to the Nile. <laughs> and yet she does. But of course, Moses' mother, Jochebed, we find her name in a few chapters, Jochebed is a good mother. She has bravely hidden Moses from the people who would seek to destroy his life for the last three months. Just able to cradle him and nurse him to keep him quiet. I don't think there's anything special about it being three months six that babies change at that point. I was panicking the other day. My wife and I have got a two-year-old. We're about to have another in May. And I was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to deal with two of these? <laughs> but of course, you know, a naught to three-month-old does this. <laughs> okay, God gives you a grace period to get used to the change in your life. <laughs> you know, that you don't sleep, but at least they stay where you put them. And so, but Moses is now three months old, and he's getting louder, and I'm sure his cries will have reverberated around the Hebrew living quarters. And one day, Jochebed fears, one day soon, an Egyptian will come, will hear his cries, will discover what sex he is, and the worst will happen. So Jacobed, she looks for a new way to continue his concealment. So she takes a basket, and this isn't like a, a fruit basket sort of thing, but more like your linen basket, you know, with a lid, so that you can fit him in. Um, the, the word is actually more like container, but we know it's a basket because they used papyrus or reeds to, to make it. Um, and she makes it seaworthy and she puts him in it, probably puts some, uh, some blankets for his comfort and sanitation, and, uh, and then takes him down to the river. She seals it, and she places it among the reeds. And the bulrushes, they offer uh, concealment, camouflage, you know, a bit of soundproofing so he can cry and cry and no one's going to hear. He's out and away from everyone else. But he doesn't float anywhere. He stays there. He just floats. The, the rushes would have held him in position. And I'm sure she would have loved to stay and keep an eye on him, but she may still be a, a slave and have duties to perform. But even if she did hang around at the edge of the river, she'd probably draw attention to him 
So she leaves her daughter to keep an eye on him. It's a heartbreaking story. But actually, we could finish the story there. Because Moses has been saved. I think we can skip that because we know the end of the story where he gets drawn out. But he is saved right here. Even in the midst of the Nile. Even in the midst of the place of death. See, there's, there's an interesting bit of wordplay that goes on here. And like I said, the word we have translated as basket that probably means more like vessel, container, we find in one other place in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, chapter 7. And there it's translated ark as in Noah and the ark. And in that story too, the water comes and threatens the lives of people, but the righteous are saved by being brought into this vessel, made of wood this time, but still covered in pitch. And there it floats. They are saved until the waters subside. And this is a challenge. This is a challenge for me, because when I think about you know, the Nile or, or Niles in my own life, the place of death, the things I fear. And I pray, God, draw me out of this. Get me out. I don't really acknowledge the salvation that he's already won for me. That I am already saved. That though I may still find myself in a situation that I fear, that I dread, I can, like the psalmist say, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and know no fear. I'm secure. Moses didn't even get wet. He didn't have to struggle. He just floated there. He was safe. For some of us, our personal Nile might be a real threat of death. I mean, long-term sickness. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Maybe like Moses, you feel alone. Ignored. You could be single or married. Loneliness can feel like death to us. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And this is for right now. When Jesus died on the cross, that final ark of salvation, he won a victory that's not just for tomorrow but for today too. You see, yes, he is the way to eternal life, but he's also about the essentials today. That's what bread is. It's a daily essential. But so is relationship. So is purpose. And we find all of these in Jesus. When we put our trust in Jesus, he will give us everything we need. See, here's the truth. Some of our Niles, we will not be drawn out of this side of heaven. And that's hard. But it does mean we can continue to grow in love and knowledge and relationship with Jesus. And that is better than anything. So Moses is saved. Hooray! But the story takes a turn. Because an Egyptian turns up. And not just any Egyptian, but the daughter 
of the Pharaoh, the daughter of the man who wants Moses dead. And clearly the camouflage has worked because her attendants on the side of the bank don't, uh, don't see it, but when she gets in the water, she spies it, and she says, oh, get it out. You can imagine Miriam, Moses' sister, standing at a distance, not knowing what to do, paralyzed by fear, watching the, the princess opening it up. The baby cries. She sees it's a Hebrew. Maybe he has some distinguishing feature. Maybe the poverty of, of his blankets or his clothes give him away. I think probably the whole situation is a bit weird. There aren't going to be many Egyptian boys who are squirreled away down by the Nile. She knows it's a Hebrew. She knows her father has said he must die. And it wouldn't take a lot to fulfill her father's murderous law. She's actually right by the Nile. All she'd have to do is drop him in. And yet she shows mercy. And she lets him live. She refused to obey her father's law. She acts mercifully and sustains his life. And more than this, she shows grace. Unmerited favor. She could have just put the baby back in the basket, turned a blind eye, leave it alone, tell her servants never to speak of it, and go home. But she doesn't. She adopts him. She brings him into her own family. She makes him a prince, royalty. She has heard his pitiful cry and draws him out of the water, out of the Nile, out of death, and she makes him royalty. This is outstanding grace. And this grace is extended too to Moses' family. <laughs> Miriam comes bounding up and says, oh, fancy a wet nurse? And yeah, I can't imagine that Pharaoh's daughter wouldn't know what was going on at this point, because why would this small girl be here? Why would she immediately know who to retrieve? I think even in the naming of Moses, she displays a level of, sort of ingenuity and charity because, yes, Moses means drawn out in Hebrew, but in Egyptian, anyone speak it? No? In Moses, in Egyptian, means son. I've got a son. So he'd go undetected in the, with, the he, with the Egyptians, rather. And we can say, yes, God is an incredible wordsmith, creator of language, orchestrator of history. Yes, you are, Lord. How amazing. And maybe the Pharaoh's daughter had no idea, but I think it's unlikely. Especially as when Moses' mother comes, she pays her. Jochebed goes through her own Exodus story. She goes from being a slave who has to hide her child to one who can walk around as a proud mother under royal protection with wages to boot. She is drawn out of poverty and persecution and drawn into riches and righteousness. This is Exodus. This is redemption. And just as a basket or an ark dropped in water produces ripples, so this story ripples through the rest of the Exodus story and the rest of history. The story continues, um, verses 11 to 22. I'm just going to sum it up because we don't have that much time. But Moses, 40 years later, he, he must know his lineage. He must know his own story of liberation. 
he tries to bring about freedom for the oppressed Hebrews himself. One day he sees one of his own kind being beaten by an Egyptian and his heart goes out not to his adopted nation but to the people of his birth. And in an ill-considered attempt at salvation, he kills the Egyptian and hides the body, which backfires. The Hebrews then fear and mistrust him, and the Egyptians want his head, and he's forced to leave Egypt. He flees to a place called Midian, where his sense of justice seems to continue, because he uh, sets uh, a group of young girls uh, free from some oppressive shepherds. He settles there. He marries one of the young women. And we'll pick up his story in a couple of weeks' time. But our chapter finishes, though, with a a quick look back at the Hebrews in Egypt. If we can read um, verse 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. So Moses is out in Midian, and the king of Egypt dies. This is good, because in a couple of chapters' time, when Moses goes back to Egypt, uh, the penalty... Uh, for his crime is no longer in action. But unfortunately, it's not good news for the Hebrews. Maybe there was hope among them that you know, this, this new pharaoh wouldn't want to keep us in slavery. You know, we, we know at least one of the old pharaoh's children was sympathetic to our plight. Maybe his son will be as compassionate as his daughter. Well, no. Any hope of that is dashed. It's, it's a bit like when you... We have a general election, and we we seem to have dodged one for a little while. But uh, you have one, and maybe the the people you voted for get in, and you're like, oh, this is great. They're going to fix this issue, that issue that I'm really pleased about. And invariably, we all end up a little bit disappointed. In a small way. (laughs) This is like that. That's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't vote. I mean... (laughs) You look at a story like this of an oppressive overlord putting people into generational slavery. We should be so grateful, thank you, Lord, that we are given democracy, that we do get to have a vote on our leadership. And we should exercise that God-given right and pray for the leaders themselves. Anyway, regime change doesn't help the Hebrews. Time heals nothing. The only thing that makes any difference is prayer. They cry out to God for help, for rescue. One of the words in this bit can be translated shriek. They shriek their petition to God, save us, save us. And God hears. See, prayer moves the heart of God. And more than that, it moves the action of God. It's not just that we pray to God and he goes, oh, buddy, that's, that's, a tough, that's a tough situation. All right. No, when we pray to God, James says, the book of James in, in the New Testament says, you don't have because you don't ask. When we pray, he just isn't sympathetic, though mercifully, beautifully he is. When we pray, God does something about it. 
And the story doesn't leave us open to the option of thinking, well, you know, we're in charge then. You know, God's in heaven waiting for us to pray. You going to do something? Yes? Oh, good, I've, I've done a good thing there. No, because what's God's response? It's to raise up Moses. He's already been doing that for 40 years. God doesn't necessarily operate in time the same way we do. And yet, even though he knows exactly what's going to happen, he invites us to work with him in prayer to bring it about. Which is an immense truth. I cannot get my head around it. But it should drive us forward in our desire to pray, but also you know, the scope of what we pray about. These stories of slavery and oppression, they can seem terribly remote to us, historically, geographically. But sadly, that's not true. Even this week in Kenya, people being killed in the name of religion, politics, power. Slavery has not gone away. There is now more slaves in the world than there was at any other time in history. Some of them caught up in the the horrors of the sex trade and some who just make the clothes that I wear and you wear. I don't want to make you feel guilty. It's just the reality of our world. And actually, babies are still being put to death in the name of a woman's right to choose. And in the face of these things, it's so easy to feel powerless. But if you know Jesus, you are powerful. God is moved by the prayers of men and women like you and me. But look, I I know what it's like, okay? I talk about these things and you go, this is a huge topic. I don't know how to begin to pray for these things. Oh, God, help the slaves. Do you know what pressure's off? Because the Bible says it's the spirit in us. It's God's own spirit that allows us to pray to the Father. So our simplest, our smallest prayer, God, help the slaves is enough. Hallelujah. But we are also encouraged to nurture and grow this gift of his presence and power in us. So let's get practical. You want to grow in prayer? I want to encourage you, get along to as much of prayer and fasting as you can. It's always a good opportunity to pray for poverty and oppression in our city. But you know we're going to be learning about perseverance and praise and petition in our prayers. If you're a guy... 7 o'clock, Tuesday morning, men's prayer. I have grown so much in my prayer life by being with these men. I've seen lots of nods in the room. And if these stories of international injustice have pricked your heart, ask Lindsay about prayer for the nations once a month here at the ministry. We're not all going to be Moses or Wilberforce but we can pray to the God who raised up Moses, who commissioned Wilberforce, and he will be moved by our prayers to change the world. And who knows what he's already up to, what young men and women he's already raising up. Pray. We can make a difference in this world. And the story ends there, with God hearing the Israelites cry. And... uh, you think, oh, that's a, that's a weird finish. 
But we know how the story's going to work out. Because Moses' story here in verses 1 to 10 actually prefigures the Israelites' own. Now, prefiguring or foreshadowing is a term that might come up throughout the Exodus series, so I thought I'd just give a little explanation on what that is. Um, You know that period between Christmas and New Year where you're a bit bored? I'm sure you had a lovely time. My brothers and I always used to watch um, the DVD extras of the, the films that we'd been given for Christmas. That's how bored we were. But I remember watching one once um, from Finding Nemo. And, uh, and they do this thing called pre-visualization. I don't want to throw in another word. But, uh, but what that is, um, the, the makers of the film, before spending all the money on all, you know, the, the beautiful shell work on Crush the Turtle or whatever, um, but they, they do a pre-visualization, which is like a moving storyboard with very basic blocky animation. Going over here, swimming, and you know, Dory swims this way. But um, it means that the, the, the makers get to see the film. They know how it's going to turn out before they spend the money to make it properly. And in the same way, we have seen the story of the Israelites played out in Moses, so we know how it's going to turn out. See, just like when Pharaoh's daughter heard the cries of Moses, God heard the cries of the Israelites, just like Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of death and brought him into her royal family. So God, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, will draw them out of death and slavery and into, he calls them a kingdom of priests in chapter 19. A kingdom, royalty. Or if we want to pinch a phrase from last year's preach series in 1 Peter, a royal priesthood. This is actually in the verses 1 to 10 that we've looked at already. I sort of skipped over it earlier. Um, But it says, you know, Moses was born to a Levite, the family of Levi. It's easy to skip over these things because, like, I don't know, who's Levi? Did his dad make jeans? I don't know. But if you were a a Hebrew reading this book, it's such a cheap joke, but (laughs) if you were a Hebrew reading this joke, you would know that the Levites, the family business, wasn't denim, it was priesthood. This story starts with Moses the priest and finishes with Moses the prince. He's a royal priest. And actually, we see ourselves in this story too. And we saw that earlier, when we put our trust in Jesus, he supplies us with our daily need. But more than this, if you believe in Jesus, you believe in his death and resurrection, you know there will come a day when you are resurrected like him, you are finally drawn out of all our sufferings, all our hurt, all our pain, all our sin, everything that's death to us, we will be free from. And that starts today. Today, if you cry out to Jesus, and there'll be an opportunity to, in just a moment, as I come to a finish, if you cry out like the Israelites, cry out like Moses, Jesus will hear you, and he'll save you. You see, this is really a story about Jesus. We see Jesus prefigured in Jochebed, Moses' mother. In the book of Hebrews, uh, in the New Testament, chapter 11, it says that Jochebed, by faith, given to her by God, she was not afraid of Pharaoh 
or his command to kill God's children. Jesus, the faithful, knowing the agonies of the cross, the tearing of his body, the separation from his heavenly father, and the dread of every sin crushing upon him, Jesus, knowing all of this, still bravely went to the cross, unafraid of Satan or death. He died to save our lives. We see Jesus too in Pharaoh's daughter. He's merciful. He is gracious. We make ourselves God's enemy when we turn our backs on him, displaying disobedience or disinterest. And he'd be fully in his right to to leave us to our fate, leave us to the Nile. But like Pharaoh's daughter, he shows mercy. He went to the cross to save us. More than this, he shows us grace. When we believe in him, in his death and resurrection, just like Moses, we're adopted into his royal household. A son or daughter of the Most High. We who believe in him, by him, are made princes and princesses of heaven. Destined to eternally receive the inheritance of the king. A royal priesthood drawn out of darkness into his marvellous light. And lastly, Chris, lastly we see Jesus in the Israelites themselves praying to God, petitioning him to save his people. Jesus, even now, is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. Unceasingly, unendingly, Jesus longs to see you brought back into relationship with your Father in heaven. So now, adopted sons and daughters, princes and princesses of God the King, he's drawn you into himself. We are now called to do these things ourselves. To have Christ-like courage, whether that's to pray for the big stuff, or just not bully that guy at work that everyone else does. We're to show mercy and grace to our enemies, like Pharaoh's daughter, giving favor and position to those at our toddler group or football team that we find most annoying. And we're to pray, to call out on Jesus. Jesus is our example in all these things. But he's also our helper. You see, these outstanding examples of courage Mercy, grace, prayer, they can't be done on our own strength. But rather, Jesus draws us into himself and will supply us with everything we need to live like him. Can we stand?